This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I hope everybody had a great holiday season. Such a, an honor to sit here in this seat and talk to these beautiful people around the world who come to us. I'm full of gratitude. And today it's sort of an old friend, someone I really like who lives in LA. He has written a beautiful book called Recovering You, Soul Care and Mindful Movement for Overcoming Addiction. It's just such a rich little book and you can kind of pick it up, and put it down and garner anything from a paragraph. I highly recommend it. There's a link on the page. It's such an honor to welcome my friend, Stephen Washington. Welcome to What Matters Most. Thank you, Paul. It's lovely to spend this time with you. It's good to be in your presence again. What are you grateful for today? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. Um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I have a life today, that I woke up, that I woke up today and I'm breathing and it's a beautiful day outside and I'm grateful that I'm sober. And doesn't gratitude just change the whole vibration and the trajectory of our thoughts, everything? Absolutely. It focuses it focuses the mind on, on what we have instead of what we don't have. And I think that in and of itself is a very powerful thing because what we focus on, we we tend to gather more of that. To say the mind otherwise will find what's wrong. Yeah, and we want to focus our energy in ways that are positive and life affirming and um and focus on what it is that we do have because no matter where we are in life in our situation there's always something there's always something that we can be grateful for but we just have to take time to search for it and you don't have to look very far but search for it and you'll find it Stephen what was your life like before you chose to get sober Mm, my life before I chose to got to get sober. Well, it would be easy to say that my life was a mess completely before I got sober, but it wasn't a complete mess. There were certainly things that were positive that were happening in my life when I was in the, the turmoil of addiction. I have to acknowledge that, but it was very challenging. And not to say that life isn't challenging in sobriety, but it's a different kind of challenge when, when you're dependent upon drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or any other destructive behavior in order to feel more comfortable in your body and your skin on this planet breathing. And what I can say is that from a very young age, I felt uncomfortable being in my own skin. I felt like a very, I was a very sensitive child. I'm still a very sensitive person. And I had endured a great deal of trauma growing up. And one, one of the ways that I learned to deal with that trauma was to self-soothe and try to self-regulate through things outside of myself, whether it was food or um, 
alcohol, drugs, cigarettes. And I did that for a long time and, and it worked for a very long time. I was able to build a career in the dance world and theater that I really loved in the midst of all that. But eventually it just took its toll and what worked for me initially began to not work for me. And the crushing weight of that just became too much to bear. And so that forced me to try to find another way to live that would be more life enhancing and life affirming. And that's when sobriety came into, into my life. That's the short story of the long story. Interestingly enough, too, I was talking last night to a friend who's about three or four years sober, and he just became a sponsor for the first time. And he was saying how rewarding it was. And I love talking to him and the steps. And I feel like we're all in some form of recovery just from being in such a toxic, traumatic world that the 12-step program is like one of the greatest miracles I think humanity's ever created. I agree with you and congratulations to your friend with uh, with the time that they have. I think that that's such a special time of one's life in those early years of sobriety because you are building a new life for yourself. You're reinventing yourself. And it's great that they are having the experience of sponsoring someone. And one of the things that I can say about those types of relationships is that for me, they taught me how to have healthier relationships with people just by having a sponsor who freely gave to me what had been freely given to, to him, which is the gift of sobriety and all the tools that we get from being in recovery. And it's wonderful to be able to be so honest with that person because a sponsor-sponsee relationship only works really if if each person is willing to be present and honest and vulnerable. And one of the things that I learned during that, that first relationship that I had with a sponsor and, and everyone afterwards, and also the people that I sponsored was that it's a process. It's a process of, um, of learning and unfolding. And that there's nothing that I have done in my life the things that I thought were so horrible, uh, they are things that other people have experienced as well. And so you feel much less alone when you know that your deepest, darkest secrets, they are things, they contain things that are pretty universal as far as, as, far as addiction goes. And so that's incredibly powerful in terms of feeling less alone and isolated. How do you deal and heal the shame that comes with all of that? It's been my experience that I've dealt with shame in my life and in my recovery first by sharing that shame with another person at the opportunity to share things that I shame that I felt with my sponsors. But I also had the opportunity to share it with therapists and to look at it and to um, really pick it apart. And one of the things that I recommend in Recovering You is that for anyone who is 
dealing with, I mean, we all deal with shame. It's, it's universal. As a person dealing with addiction, shame is, it, it, it's, it's a whole other level of existence. And I always advise people to, to work with someone, to work with someone who can help them unpack the shame. Because until you do that, you, you, can't, you can't truly begin to recover because we carry that with us. And, and one of the things that helps us move along in recovery is our ability to, um, to shed some of that shame and to change our relationship to it. I love what Brene Brown says about shame, that shame needs three things to survive. It needs silence, secrecy, and judgment. So once we, once we speak out about what we feel shame about, um, and once we share it with someone else that we trust, and, and we don't share that with just anybody, people have to earn the right to hear our, our shame and um, and then once we're able to do that and and share that with someone who doesn't judge us, and when you can share that with someone who won't judge you, I know that it gave me permission and also the courage to judge myself less as well. It's so universal, and I love the beauty and the authenticity you're bringing to all this. And I love that you said it's a process because you don't get a certificate like on year three and now you go out and have a party. It's really a day-to-day, like they say, one day at a time. But really life at its best is when we're just present one moment at a time, one hour at a time. And we just bring awareness to whatever good or bad or sideways thought. We don't even have to judge it as good or bad. It's just like, oh, why do I feel empty? Why do I want to fill the hole? What is that fleeting feeling I have, whether it's joy, grief, less than, and then become the observer. So you're not like the pinball that just reacts around the chaotic mind. So true. I love what you just said about being present, being living one day at a time and being present. One of the things that I think about a lot in my recovery, and I talk about it as well in the pages of the book, is just how powerful we are in the present moment, if we can truly allow ourselves to be in the present moment. But the tricky thing is living life, we tend to look at the past and stare at it, oftentimes with regret or remorse or shame, or we're staring at the future and not always in a optimistic, positive way. Oftentimes it's with fear, fear of the unknown, what's what's lurking just right around the corner. And the past or the future are places where we hold no power. We have no control over that. But the present moment is a place where we have power, where we have influence. And the more we can bring ourselves back to the present moment, the better it is for us on a physical level as well as an emotional and spiritual level as well. And I know that it's a process and none of us do that perfectly each and every moment of each and every day. But when we can just do our best and when we find ourselves getting lost in the past or in the future, just to bring ourselves back to the present. And the breath is an incredible way to bring us back to the present moment, tuning into the breath, how we're breathing, or also just tuning into the sensations that we feel in our body. That brings us back to the present moment. Did you struggle at all with the higher power aspect? And not really you, the ego always struggles with the higher power thing. 
I once went to an ashram and there was a real master who would tell everyone not to call him master. But I heard my ego say all the time I had, I'm not telling, calling him a master, you know, just the ego. (laughs) Mm. The higher power thing. It's interesting. My first sponsor was also a dear friend of mine still is today. He told me that I was fortunate enough to already have some sort of conception of a higher power uh, in my in my pocket when I first got sober that it wasn't it wasn't a major obstacle for me. One of the things for people who don't know about 12-step recovery is that it's truly a spiritual program. It's not a religious program, but it's a spiritual program and it encourages each and every person to connect to some power greater than themselves. And that power can be nature. It could be whatever it is that you want it to be, something that's meaningful. For many people, it's the power of the group that you're a part of. It's the collective wisdom of the group, whatever it is, because there are times when we feel on the verge of relapse, on the verge of reverting back to those destructive patterns and behaviors that we've depended upon for so long. And sometimes the only thing that truly stands between you and that thing that you're trying to stop and and get away from is this connection with your higher power that where we get strength and where we, we get some kind of support. That's been my experience wholeheartedly. What I can say about my relationship with my higher power is that it has changed and grown over time. I grew up in a environment where my family was closely aligned with um, like Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist faith. And, and that was a really challenging environment for me to be in because being a young person, very sensitive child, coming into my own, starting to learn that I was gay, I didn't feel as though there was a place for me in that environment. And so I started to wonder, well, does my higher power, at the time I referred to it as God, does God love me or care about me or think that I uh, have a right to be here. Like I really had those kinds of questions. And I think that is closely linked to the sense of shame that I was carrying with myself for so long. And what I can say is in my time in recovery, slowly, bit by bit, I've been able to develop a relationship with a higher power of my own understanding that I was able to create this higher power that resonates with me, that loves me for exactly who I am, what I am, um, flaws and all. And, And that gave me a wonderful starting point to build from there. And it's been an incredible, incredible process. I love having conversations with my higher power that are as simple and casual and as relaxed as the conversation that I'm having with you. 
I, I don't get caught up in prayers, um, proper or or traditional prayers. It's just me and my higher power just shooting the shit, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And uh, and it's great. And and when I am able to drop into that those moments, which which really draw me very much into the present moment, it's powerful. And I feel like I'm connected. I feel as though. I feel as though I am connected. I feel as though this 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 higher power is listening to me, and also I can hear it. I can hear it on a cellular level. What it would like for me to know in that moment. Mm, so beautiful. And I always forget to ask for help. I'm like trying to move the piano by myself and getting the spiritual hernia. The gorilla's right there, the million-pound gorilla who just lives and exists to assist. Mm, yeah, I love that. And that reminds me of just how important it is to ask for help. Help Asking for help is a spiritual practice in and of itself. And it's, that's why I have to keep talking about it, to remind myself all the time. And I can't imagine creation, infinite love and creation, ever creating any aspect of itself and then not loving it, whether it's gay, straight, or whatever color, if it's the shark or the the barracuda or the tuna, it's everything. It's only our little ancestral tribal judgments who take God, infinite love, and suddenly it's in a book and it's codified, it's racist, it's only down at that one building on Sundays and Wednesday nights. It hates, it loves guns. Only the human mind could do that to infinite love. I agree 100%. So beautifully put. Do you feel safe moving around the United States as a, an African-American gay male in your own body? I mean, there are challenges for you that wouldn't be there for, you know, white male me. That's a powerful question, Paul. I love it. <laughs> One that I did not expect to get today, but I'm happy to. There, None of them are scripted, as you probably figure out in like three seconds. No, and I love it, and I'm I'm happy to answer that. The pandemic was a very interesting time for me because I felt I felt unsure about how safe I was in the world, and I think it. I think what happened to George Floyd and our the time that we were in where we were all able to witness that and the fact that we were able to witness it over and over again, which in and of itself is very traumatic. It led me to feel less safe than I felt before. I felt as though I was feeling vulnerable in ways that I had not exactly felt before. And maybe part of that is just age too, being older now than I was, say, when I was a young 20-something person living in New York City feeling as though I was invulnerable. And it was a really challenging time. And one of the things that I felt like I needed to do and something that I talked to my husband about at the time was we need to get out of the United States because it just felt like such a toxic place to be in as far as race and social justice and or the lack thereof, and because I didn't feel safe. And it was an interesting process 
to go through because what came to me, what came to what intuitive guidance I received during that time, and it took me a while to get to this point, was that the only way for me to feel safe in my body, in this world, is I have to go from, I have to go and gather that from within. Nothing outside of me is going to be able to give me that. I could move to another country in order to seek safety, but that's just a Band-Aid. That's just a Band-Aid on, on, this, on this, this deep wound that I'm feeling and experiencing. So I had to do things, create safety in myself. And one of the things that I, one of the many things I did during that time was I got back into therapy because I felt like there was trauma that was being, um, that was being triggered during that time that I needed to look at. I needed my friends. I needed to connect with my friends more. That time was a very isolating time for all of us. And I needed to connect to my friends more. I also started to work with a, with a self-defense teacher and I started taking self-defense classes so that I could feel more embodied, which was interesting because I've always been a very physical person. Movement is the center of my, of my world, my life, along with recovery. But there was something much more young for lack of a better word, about taking self-defense and learning how to have strategies that I could use to defend myself out in the world if I ever needed to, so that I could walk and feel more safety in my life and in my body on this planet. And so all of that together really helped to transform me and help me to feel more safe in my body. And one other thing that I did too, was I stopped watching the news so much <laughs> during that time, because that was also an incredible trigger for me. And it was, it kept re-traumatizing me. So I had to be much more diligent about what I was allowing into my consciousness day in and day out because I, I feel as though the world focuses so much on the negative, focuses so much on the pain and the trauma and the anger and the resentment. And if I were to, if I was ever going to be able to uplift myself and change my own home frequency, I'd have to do that. And so, yeah, that's a brilliant question. Thank you for asking. And that's 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 my experience with it. Thank you for sharing so honestly. And shoot, I want to leave all the time. And I'm a white guy. I can't even imagine what it would be like here if to be what's considered a minority, just because it does feel like it's spun towards a toxic place and doesn't want to be a pluralistic democracy. And rather than stand in front of a tank or bang on City Hall, I see the larger picture and I feel like, well, why don't, like if I was sitting with you and Lee, I'd say, why don't we just move somewhere where it's quiet if we don't like the noise rather than get everyone around us to be quiet, try to be quiet when they don't want to be, 
like you did. It's an inner game with feeling safe and being at peace. That said, uh, maybe we won't camp tonight next to the lion's den. <laughs> what is that old phrase? God helps those that help themselves. Yeah. You know, I felt safe and I went and hung out with the five tigers and well, two were hungry. So anyway, <laughs> that... now I'm here. I'm back as a grasshopper. <laughs> Yeah, there's that balance. You know, you have to find the balance. Uh, you you work with Qigong. Will you talk about that? I've always been fascinated with it, and I have friends who teach it and everything like that. And it has such a cool name in the Chinese ancient. And I'm sure your Southern Baptist people think it's satanic because anything different is scary and other. But I once read a book from hardcore Christians. There, Everything in there was uh, <laughs> the devil, yoga, I think organic food. I was like, my God, what's going on with this? Crazy shit. But on a serious note, what is what is Qigong and how has it played a role in your life? Well, Qigong is an ancient Chinese, it's an ancient Chinese healthcare system that combines following movements, standing postures, deep breathing, and focused intention to activate, cultivate, and circulate life force energy. And that's the energy that we all have within each and every one of us. It's that divine spark that keeps our heart beating and and uh, pumps the blood through the body. And, and it's that energy of our emotions and also the energy of our thoughts and our consciousness. And so when you take the word Qigong and you break it down and you break it in half, Qi means energy or breath and Gong means work or skill. So the practice of Qigong is a practice of becoming more skillful at managing our own energy. And that's something that we all could benefit from, right? We can all benefit from having more energy. How many of us are walking around feeling like we don't have enough energy to meet the life that we're living? And so Qigong is a wonderful practice for us to cultivate more of it, that energy, but also to focus it. There's a lot of things in life that drain us of our energy and, and one of the things that drains our energy the most is stress and it's stress that we that we feel within i've heard i've heard the word stress is defined as an interpretation of our outside environment right because some things in life one person might find it stressful where another person finds it enjoyable for and i think of like roller coasters like I love roller coasters and I, I enjoy them. I don't enjoy them as much as I used to, but I still enjoy them. But for some people, that's just a bridge too far. So it's interesting to look at what, how we interpret things as stress. And so, yes, yeah, stress is one of the things that drains us of our life force energy, but also just sort of lifestyle habits as well. When we look at how we, how we eat, if we eat, foods that aren't good for us, like a lot of fried food, processed food, uh, uh, a lot of sugar, those things can tap us, zap us of our, or drain us of our energy. But also when we do things like drink alcohol um, to excess or smoke or do drugs, things like that, drain us of our life force energy. And when we don't sleep, when we get enough sleep, many of us are moving through the world underslept. We focus so much on doing, 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 and less on being, and less on resting and, 
and restoring and relaxing. So Qigong is a practice that helps us to bring all of our energies into balance. Movement is just a huge part of your life. You danced on Broadway. You're, do you still dance? Do you dance for fun? Do you ever just crank the music up and then just start moving around? I do. I dance for fun. I dance for fun. I don't dance for a dime anymore, but I dance for fun. <laughs> and uh, dance has always been a big part of my life. I remember when I was a kid, dancing around the living room to uh, music on the stereo that we had in our living room, whether it was Stevie Wonder or Grace Jones or Stephanie Mills. And I would just dance, dance, dance on the carpet. And I would do it because it made me feel good. Just intuitively, it made me feel good. And what I later realized is that I was doing energy work on myself without even knowing it. So dance and movement has always been a lifesaver for me. And one of the things that was just such an incredible gift that I was given was just this talent that I had as a dancer, as an artist. And that led me to just be in a community that was allowed, that allowed me to, to be truly myself, which was amazing. And, and I did it for so long and I had a wonderful, wonderful career. And then when it was time for me to stop and do something else, which I, I moved on to being a Pilates instructor. And then I eventually moved on to studying Chinese medicine. And, and then I went on to studying massage. And, and then now that's what I do, what I offer people. I teach people Pilates and, and Qigong and as part of my uh, membership community, the SWE studio. And I also offer other practices because I know how powerful movement is. Movement is healing. We are designed to move. Uh, when we, um, when I think about this one aspect of Chinese medicine, they always say that move, energy was designed to flow freely through the body. But when energy doesn't flow freely in the body, that's where we develop things like tension, pain, forms of disease. And what I love about Qigong, but really any mindful movement practice is that it gives us the opportunity to, to circulate the energy so that it doesn't become stuck and stagnant. It's like when water flows, it's clean and it, and it has energy and vibrancy, but when it's stuck, it becomes murky and dark and dank and um, stagnant. So I always, keep that in mind as I move my body and as I encourage other people to move their bodies because energy is designed to move freely. And that's going to be different for each and every person. But nonetheless, it's, it's important. It's really important for each of us to do in some way, shape or form. I get depressed when I don't move. I took a long couple mile walk today. I go down by the beach. I like to ride the bike a lot. That's why I live in mild climates mostly because I like to be outside, sunshine, air, music. But if uh, funny, if I uh, don't get to move, I, I pretty quickly feel less than like my body. I guess maybe I'm addicted to the release or the, the patterns, but it just feels like uh, the energy moves around and mentally I just feel better. I sleep better at night. It just works all in, you know, it's all concerted. Absolutely. I love hearing that. And that's my experience as well. If I, if I'm, if I am too 
sedentary or still for too long, it affects me. It affects me physically, but it also affects me emotionally and mentally. And that's why movement is such an important part of my life. And I hope, I hope knock on wood that I stay healthy enough to, to move my body in some way, shape or form until the day I die. And hopefully that'll be when I'm very old and gray. How closely do you monitor your diet? That's a very good question. <laughs> I would say that that I try to to eat in a balanced way. There are things that I have weaknesses for, like like most of us. I love sugar, and I love desserts and things like that. And I have to find a way to moderate that, and that's something that I've worked on for quite a few years now and but I try not to I try not to think about anything that I do with my diet my 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 diet and what I put into my body I try not to look at it, any of it in a very restrictive way I try to I try to give myself what my body needs but I also try to give it a little bit of what it wants as well and the best I can do is just to try to do it in a very moderate kind of way, which is something that is an interesting challenge for someone who's lived a fair amount of their life trying to affect how they feel by things outside of themselves. And that is at times has also been food. So I'm just very conscious of that. And I think it's, for me, a, a work in progress all the time. There's always things that I'm learning about health and nutrition that, uh, that I will try to adopt because I know it will help me live a healthier life. And one of the things that I, I know that I am, I am challenged by, and I think some of your listeners will relate to this, is managing... Um, stress and managing like blood pressure and hypertension. Um, for me, I'm pre-hypertensive and that is something that runs in my family. Um, but there's also, there's also cultural things that, that exist that impact that as well. I think a lot of, a lot of African-American people, people of color have um, hypertension. And I think that's one of the ways that that's one of the impacts of the stress of living in systems that uh, are oppressive, that that's one of the ways that it impacts people. Same can be said also for diabetes as well. As healthy and, and as fit as I am, uh, I, I am working to bring that into balance as well in terms of um, blood sugar levels, because also stress impacts your blood sugar levels. Uh, so it's, it's a constant learning and unfolding and trying new things to help me live the best life that I can in the body that I was given. Well, you and I share our sugar love. I think from our planet of ETs, that's one of the things when we come here. We love our desserts and our sweets. We just, and I think moderation needs moderation. 
We don't have to be draconian, especially when I read the climate change reports. I feel like there's no way I will naturally outlive the demise of the ecosystem. So I might as well have some sugar. You might as well eat that cookie. <laughs> What's your favorite kind of dessert? Oh, in this moment, I would tiramisu came screaming to my into my thing. Anything chocolatey, maybe with different layers, maybe some ice creamy, moussey type chocolate thing. I'm very liberal. I could go key lime pie, warm chocolate chip cookies. Do you have a favorite? I'm I'm much more democratic. I I love so many different types of desserts like much like you i i love the chocolate i love kind of creamy caramel type of desserts but i also love citrusy things like i love i love key lime pie i love lemon anything uh fruit anything but i'm i much i gravitate more towards pies than cakes and i love cookies and occasionally I do like ice cream, but it has to be like artisanal ice cream. I can't, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna have a, a little sugar fix, I wanna make sure that it's really good quality. I don't wanna blow it on crappy stuff, you know? I'm with you. I'm not a Dunkin' Donuts or crappy ice cream guy. I, I want, if I'm gonna blow it, I want the highest end sugar, the good <laughs> stuff, man. <laughs> Give me that good shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. Kindred Soul. I think the night we went to dinner, you and I shared a dessert. And Lee was like, nah. Maybe, maybe. And it may have been, yeah, I think I remember where we were. And I think I remember the dessert. And it may have been, it may have been a dessert that was made in a little cast iron skillet. It was like a, it's like a cookie kind of thing. And it had ice cream on top. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Yeah. Cobblery thing. Yeah. Hey, Stephen, how come when people heal and get whole and healthy and sober, the natural inclination on a soul heart level is to turn back, reach back, and lift others up? I've noticed that. And it's like the greatest sense of fulfillment, like you're doing with this book and all that. You could have said, oh, I got mine. I'm, I'm moving on. I'm successful. But there always seems to be like my friend Steve in New York, who I talked to yesterday. They want to help people. You want to help people. What is that? When I was early in sobriety, one of the first things I heard is that you can't keep it unless you give it away. Mm. And I found that to be true. Absolutely. There's something very magical and special when you're able to give away what was so freely given to you. And my recovery was very freely given to me by my friend. His name was Craig is his name is Craig. He's still alive, of course. And he's, he's in the New York area too. But he was just this beacon of light for me when I, when I so needed to have a source of hope and inspiration, he was it. And he, he was the person I turned to when I knew that I couldn't live another day drinking. But I also knew that I didn't know how to not do that as well. And so he he just took me under his wing. And that was just a very powerful example of how to live. And I knew just by watching him and later on by talking to him that that is what brought and still brings so much joy in the life of a person. 
when we can help someone to help themselves and to effectively change their change their life. Nothing better than than being bearing witness to someone's growth and development and change. Because it's easier, I think, for me to, to, to notice growth and change in another person than it is for me to always see it in myself. And I just feel as though there are so many opportunities to do that in recovery and, and being able to share it with others is a way to take an ordinary life and make it extraordinary. How do you feel about your mortality? You're still young, vital, and healthy, happy, thriving. But do you contemplate your ending and are you at peace with that? And we know that Stephen is just the character you're playing. You're not the observer. In real life, you are the observer and you're infinite. But how do you feel about the character of Stephen? And at some point, the curtain will come down. We never know when. Are you at peace with that? And where do you feel? what do you feel about all of that? I grow more and more at peace with it every day. It doesn't mean that I am 100% at peace with it now at 51. There's a different level of consciousness around mortality, of course, at 51 than it was when I was 31. Such a great question. It's constantly unfolding for me. It's constantly unfolding for me. And I think that I'm so grateful for the life that I have lived because I feel as though I've lived multiple lives in one lifetime because of recovery. And I, I feel really blessed. I feel grateful. I feel as though I've lived a great life. And so there are moments when I think, well, what if it all ended tomorrow? And there are moments when I think, okay, I, I would be okay with that. I mean, the fact that I found my husband almost seven years ago, and he is the love of my life, that I'm so grateful that I've had that, that what else could I want? <laughs> In addition to all the transformations that have taken place within myself. And then I have moments of like, oh, I, I don't want, I, I want to live a really, really long life. <laughs> But I want to live a long life, but I want to be healthy and I want to be vital. I don't want to live a long life and, and be suffering all the way through it. So it's it's interesting, the thoughts that I have uh, on any given day about life and mortality and the comfort or the discomfort I am I have with with any and all of it. But I love those moments when when the grip that I have on my life loosens, softens a bit. Because I don't want to hold on to anything with a death grip. I want to hold it with just a soft grip, a soft touch. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.